You're listening to Well Now, Slate's podcast on health and wellness. I'm Maya Fowler. And I'm Kavita Patel. Love is in the air, or at least that's what the business is hoping to cash in on Valentine's Day like to tell us. And whether you're watching a rom-com. I hate the way you talk to me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. Reading a romantic novel. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, and love, and love you. Or listening to a ballad. We just can't seem to get enough of a good love story. You know what kind of story we're talking about? You're just out there living your life, minding your own business, and suddenly you meet the one. The person who completes you in every way, emotionally, spiritually, and of course, physically. And sure, maybe there's some obstacles along the way, but none of them stand a chance against you and your true love. Your soulmates, after all. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And while these narratives are filled with passion and drama, they rarely offer a realistic view of what romantic partnership looks like. Let's be real. In rom-coms, finding love is the destination. We don't get to see what happens to the happy couple, five, ten, 20 years down the road. Now, the interesting thing is that healthy long-term partnerships like marriage can lead to better health and wellness outcomes, like living longer and reducing risk for cardiovascular diseases. And on the flip side, unhealthy love can lead to negative outcomes for your health, even worsening chronic conditions, leading to higher mortality. That's why this week on the show, we're going to skip all the romantic cliches and get to the heart of love and wellness. What does a well-supported, fulfilling, and thriving lifelong partnership look like? And how does coupledom contribute to a life of wellness? Our guest this week is taking our culture's view of romantic love and turning it on its head. Everything that God, with that ultimate power, can provide, we put the weight on love. It's unfair. It's unreal. It's not even possible. Redefining love with a world-renowned social psychologist and relationship expert. That's after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Well Now. I'm Maya Feller. And I'm Kavita Patel. Our guest has spent more than two decades working with couples around the world, tackling problems with intimacy, communication, and more. Dr. Sara Nasrzadeh is an author, couples therapist, and international speaker with a PhD in social psychology. She specializes in sexuality, relationships, and intercultural fluency. Her latest book is called Love by Design, Six Ingredients to Build a Lifetime of Love. In it, she's collected data from hundreds of her clients and patients over the past 10 years. She's distilled six key components she found that build lasting, loving relationships. And today, we're going to talk more about how this can actually feed into wellness. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on Well Now. 
It's a real pleasure to be with you both today. Thank you. So since this is a wellness show, I want to start off with a question that we often ask our guests. How do you, Sarah, define wellness? Great question to start with and a million dollar question, I guess. So the way that I came to define it is when I'm happy in my skin and when I look at my well-being in a holistic way. So when I have a peace of heart, clarity of mind, and a functional body to the point that it can catch up with my lifestyle. So that's how I would (laughs) uh, say well-being is defined for me. I think that's a great definition, Sarah. And we don't ask it as a trick question. You're right. It's a million-dollar question because to each of us, being well is worth exactly that. It's, It's In essence, it's priceless. Now, what in your view is the biggest misconception about love? That it happens to you. That love happens to you? Yes. That is so heavy duty, Sarah. (laughs) That is so heavy. I feel like you just tossed like a weighted ball and I caught it and I'm like, and then I'm like looking at my trainer and I'm like, what do I do with this? Absolutely. The first thing and the first way that I can describe this will impact you is, uh, Maya, can you hold that big weighted ball in your hand? It's heavy. (laughs) Right. How long and how far can you carry that in your life? Mm. Right? So that is the impact on our health. We are exhausted. We don't know where we're going. We are looking for things that don't even exist. We can't even define. Right? And there's another problem with love because there are so many amazing philosophical ways that we can describe this. Like, for example, Simon May talks about how As the societies became more secular, they replaced divine and God by love. And everything that God with that ultimate power can provide, we put the weight on love. It's unfair. It's unreal. It's not even possible. Right? So that is the problem that we have. Imagine that in your life, you're chasing something that is not, you know that it's not possible. You know subconsciously this is not possible. It's just the idea that you're chasing. Where does that lead you? High cortisol, anxiety, lack of satisfaction, lack of self-esteem, all of those. This is common sense, right? Even without touching the research. I would say there's a lot of... um... Hollywood, or it doesn't matter what country you're in, India, Bollywood, kind of everywhere in all countries, there's this cultural conception of love, love that's like constant at the same level all the time. And that if you don't have that, you clearly are not in love. What are some of the things that you did observe that fed into this view that people have? So when we are talking about a phenomenal to describe it, Think about the metaphors that people use to describe their experiences. So when you talk about how these got embedded in our culture without even knowing, language is a big part of it. Falling in love. Start with that. Falling in love. I'm walking down the street and I'm falling into something. That's a terrible thing. We are not talking about elevating ourselves. 
to that level. We're talking about falling or, for example, talking about love is dangerous. Love is nerve wracking. Just listen to the conversations. Love is all you need. It's as if, you know, there's a thing which is a concept to begin with, not to be defined. And then as soon as you catch it, the rest will follow. And what I find interesting is that when you're standing at that altar, when you say, I do, you're committing to an act. You say, I do. But when it comes to love, it's a feeling. It's really interesting, no? It is so interesting. You talk about that in your book, that sometimes in your work with couples, you'll have them bring their marriage certificate in, flip it over, and have them read kind of that contract that they have, you know, signed, you know, till death do us part and all the things in between. You're right. That resonates so much with me, this emotion of falling head over heels and quote unquote, love is blind versus that like ever permanent I do. My gosh, that is really, when you say it like that, that's quite a bit to chew on. (laughs) Absolutely. And then the other thing is, it's interesting because, yes, traditionally speaking, two people that are of opposite sex, they come together and usually they resemble each other a lot, like, for example, by the looks and, you know, whatnot. And then they come together, they spend a lot of resources with each other, time and energy, attention and money. Then they become one. So if you really think about two circles coming together and then completely intertwined, like overlapping with one another, that's submergent love. That's what Hollywood, Bollywood, all of those aspirational forms of love come to be. These are the things that people don't question. My invitation for everyone is just question the things that are around you and they are not working, giving you heartbreaks over and over again. Can you define submergent love for us, Sarah? And what problems submergent love can bring up? Sure. In simplest terms, one plus one equals one. Two people come together, enjoy sharing their resources of time, energy, attention, and money together, and then they submerge into becoming one. They overlap on one another. So the issues with submergent love is basically there's not much left of you. And then little by little, you realize that the attraction piece will go away. Attraction, I'm not talking about sexual attraction only. The other one is you're isolating yourself from other people. And that's to a certain degree expected at the beginning of that infatuation and, you know, all that. But a lot of people lose their friends over that because they don't really mingle with other people. They lose interest. They lose hobbies. They lose. And that's why they have this big awakening around 40s and 50s or, you know, whatever age that is or whenever that it happened to them. Uh, that they realize that, oh my God, there's nothing left of me. And then they build up resentment towards the other person. You were the reason. So that sort of um, grief, anger, sadness, almost embarrassment that you let that happen. And when it goes over time, then you actually develop codependency, which is a state of not really being able to have your own way of thinking, your own way of being, and that sense of thriving definitely diminishes. We talked a little bit in our intro about your background, and you do describe this not only as a labor of love, but you poured your entire life into this. Talk to us about how you actually started this research for the latest book, and expand on that even more, and how you brought this into you know what we're reading now. So I always wanted to know how we can make people 
feel a little bit more fulfilled in life, in their relationships or otherwise. As I started going into more of the couples counseling, psychosexual therapy, sexuality education, I started there because I figured this is one of those spaces, uh, the intimate connection that the people have, and the space that they share with one another physically is a place that could be pride, shame, vulnerability, blame, anything, you name it, you can find it there, power, you know, everything. So that fascinated me. And I started seeing a pattern in my couples. Day in, day out, I saw couples coming with a very similar terminology. Like it started sounding like, I love this person, I'm not in love with them. Or heartbroken individuals chasing something that they couldn't catch. It was really painful. And then certain words and certain concepts started to emerge. Like, for example, compassion, uh, physical attraction, respect, these sort of things. So this was with 312 couples that I personally worked with. And then when those concepts emerged, then I teamed up with Dr. Azarmina, who was the founder of the Thinkocrats and have done a lot of research around thinking style, something that is behind the self-actualization of people you know, the purpose of life, we put this into a validation study, which was quantitative. So if we picked out, instead of going after people asking what makes your marriages or relationships or coupledoms fail, we asked them, what made your relationship thrive? What are these concepts that make sense to you? And how do you define it? How do you experience it? How do you express it? We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Sara about this new kind of love, this different kind of love, one that she says is the key to lifelong partnership. Stay tuned. We're back. You're listening to Well Now from Slate. I'm Kavita Patel. And I'm Maya Feller. We're continuing our conversation about relationships and wellness with Dr. Sara Nazarzadeh. Her new book is Love by Design, Six Ingredients to Build a Lifetime of Love. So before the break, we were talking about what you call submergent love, which you feel is dominant in Anglo-American and Anglo-European culture. In your book, you offer an alternative model, emergent love. What is that? And how is that different from submergent love? Emergent love, first of all, let's decode the words here, right? Emergent entity is something that is created based on the interaction of two or more more elements. It's from them, but it's not them. So if we can just define that, right? In his book, Systems Thinking, Jamshid Gharashidari talks about a spark and log coming together to make fire. And that fire is emergent love that we are talking about. So instead of one plus one equals one, in submergent love, we talk about one plus one equals three. This could apply to any kind of blended families, blended relationships, uh, open relationships, 
any significant close relationship, you will see that these ingredients, if you don't have them, that sort of love, that sort of fire doesn't even have a chance to emerge. Tell us a little bit more about what those ingredients are. Sure. In no particular order, there are attraction, shared vision, trust, compassion, respect, and acts of loving. And they all need to be reciprocal and mutual for a relationship to thrive and for that fire to exist. And the reason I call them ingredients is that every day you wake up and sometimes you feel like, hmm, I need to sprinkle a little bit more respect here into the relational space, a little bit of more compassion. So that's why I call them ingredients to make the intentionality of it even more prominent in the conversation. Let's maybe talk about compassion and see if we can unpack a little bit more about that and describe the difference between, for example, empathy and compassion, because you actually discuss that in the book and talk about that being very important, especially in in intimacy and in relationships. What are the differences between the two? And you suggest that you should have prioritized compassion over empathy, but why is that? Imagine that empathy is feeling with another person. Compassion is feeling for another person. So for example, when I was being trained as a therapist in England, they told us that you shouldn't get engaged in your client's emotions. Because if you are coming to me in distress, any kind of distress, and if I start resonating with your nervous system, with the way that you are resonating, then I can't really show up for you, can I? I need to keep my resonance to the level to bring you down from that distressful situation, right? Now, let me break it down. In couples, when I see something is somebody comes to you and says, you know what, the way that you talk to me, that was so disrespectful. No, no, no. It's about you. So it's very difficult to get yourself out of it. But if you can really master the art of compassion, the state of compassion, you will be there for the other person, for them, not for you. You will get your chance. You will get your turn. But when a person comes and says, hey, I'm bleeding, it doesn't matter if I created the bleeding or somebody else, I should be able to be there and say, what do you need? How can I be there for you? Can I give you a Band-Aid? Do we drive to the hospital? But in most couple of them, the way that they go off rail is when they come and say, oh, hang on a minute, you're bleeding? Look, I'm bleeding. You have a scar? Let me show you mine. Mine is an open wound, gushing blood. And then sometimes we even feel so much for the other person in empathy when we are over-empathizing with each other that we take away the whole thing. We are completely dismissing of the other person. It becomes about me and my experience rather than you and your experience for me showing up for you. So to bring it full circle... When I say empathy, empathy has certain spaces in a relationship. Like, for example, erotic empathy. It's beautiful. You feel with each other. You go to a space with, with each other if you choose to. But in a regular interaction, daily interactions that you have with a person, it could be your child, your partner, your coworker, you know, whatever, you need to be able to present yourself for them with compassion. And it's also so much less exhausting in a relationship because the person that's having that emotional experience can be supported rather than having the partner hijack the emotions. And I feel like that's something that, you know, 
it's it's it is a a muscle or a fluency that we all need to develop, right? We've all got to get to this place where we understand ourselves in the context of, you know, interpersonal relationships in the world. So I feel like these ingredients, you know, of love are, they're really grounded for me, right? When I hear you talking about this, how does that stability and grounding contribute to wellness, vitality, thriving for each partner? Humans do much better when they know they have a sense of agency. When you have a sense of agency, you're less anxious. It's mobilizing for you rather than paralyzing. So let's say, for example, the way that we define each of these elements are going to bring them home for you. So for example, with attraction, we go beyond sexual attraction. We talk about social attraction, financial attraction, um, intellectual attraction, which is more and more on demand these days, right? How do they look like? What do they mean to me? What is my blueprint around all of these six ingredients? How to look for it, how to cultivate it, how to nurture it in a relationship, right? And when I know that I have that sense of agency and I know where to go, then that reduces my stress. Then my the content of my thought is more positive. I'm not preoccupied constantly thinking, am I okay? Are you okay? Are we okay? Where are we going? Is this the right person? Is this the right thing we're doing? So that's what we're talking about. If we come full circle from these you know, six ingredients and how they show up in your health and your partner's health. We've talked a lot about these six ingredients and we've spoken about the ingredients and and quite honestly, I'm struggling a little bit because I feel like these ingredients work well with a traditional model of a couple. By that, I mean a monogamous couple between a cisgender man, cisgender woman, with this very Hollywood notion of marrying for love that you see in the United States. But Sarah, I'm having trouble because so much of what I know about relationships exists outside of that model. And honestly, billions of people, my grandparents and parents, for example, who are Indian and were married through an arranged marriage and have had a perfectly comfortable arrangement where this is the norm and that the Hollywood method of love or how we look at it is actually the flawed one. So how does your framework apply to couples outside of this traditional American form of marriage? I know that you've been taking care of people who are from many different cultures. This must come up. I can't tell you how appreciative I am of that question. So two things. One is, at first when I started presenting on this model, I can't tell you how many people came to me and say, I apologize. When you first started saying love by design and you are from Iran, I thought you were going to shove arranged marriages down my throat. And I swear to God, this happens so often, even now with different interviews, some people go there immediately. So you see how different perspectives work. And on the other side of it, there are people who come and say that, yippee, we have the sense of agency in the individualistic culture. Let's do that, right? So you see, everything is about perception. That's why I call them ingredients. These are all by choice, right? Let's say, for example, you are talking to a friend in India and then they don't believe in the sexual chemistry piece, right? So they believe in much more. So in the book, when you see the relational configuration, I put two circles 
side by side and a big oval shape around them so that they are encapsulated by the relationship. So relationship comes first, not the individual person, because it's a collective culture. Marriage is more than bringing two people together. So there's a reason that we have different configurations to normalize this and also to make a point that these six ingredients are in play in any kind of arrangement that you're in. If social attraction is your thing, like for example, arranged marriages, that's your thing as long as you know. What makes it difficult is when that couple in that arranged marriage, they come to me and say, we married each other because the families were compatible. So all of that social attraction was there. The problem that brought them to me was, why don't I feel that spark with the person? And then when I ask them, has it ever been there? Has it ever been important to you? They say no. So they are actually being bogged down and being imposed upon by the societal norms that they think they're missing out on something. Pick your thing. What is it that you would like to be a part of? What is it that you you personally would like to be around? And then evaluate it and evolve with it over time. So these are the things that I feel like, you know, if we really expand our minds beyond this, just the intimate, Anglo-dictated relationships, heteronormative, then we can really create world peace, one relationship at a time. And Sarah, if we bring it back to coupledom, right? One thing that resonated with me was growing with the person, getting to know them differently, right? You're different if you've been in this long-term coupledom than you were at 19, then 45. Lots has happened. Different needs for each individual. But at what point, you know, when we're looking at this, would you say that the relationship becomes harmful or maybe it has this like limited ability to contribute to the wellness of their partner. And in the beginning, you said there are times where people, listen, they just need to move on. And when should people just move on? Great question. That was a part of our training. You should never give advice to your clients. I try to do because I feel like, look, I studied this for career. I lived it. You know, I'm in a position that I should know more. With relationships, sometimes couples come to me and say, what is your honest feedback to us? I'm like, this is not going to work. And those situations are the ones that either the cracks in the relationships, which are plenty, and if we don't pay attention to them, they become wedges. When the couple comes to me, they don't even know each other. Like they have zero in common. The vision is different now. So they stopped growing together or they stop growing towards the same common goals together. Or one of them, which is very common, unfortunately, one or both of them or all of them involved, stopped working on themselves. When I was writing the book, there was a big uh, conversation that we had with the editorial board of the book at the publishing house. And I'm so glad that I had an informed group to agree with me because we were going to only focus on couples. I said, no. We need to have a whole section on what we bring to love individually. And that was the purpose behind it. Because if you stop growing, if you stop respecting yourself, then the other person is not going to respect you. If you don't know where your boundaries are, you stop sending invitations to people how to treat you properly, right? So those are the works that could be done. Now, 
If people are listening to this, you feel like the experience that you have in the relationship turned into the darkness that you can't get yourself out of it. For example, you wake up in the morning, you feel terrible about yourself. You feel terrible about how you're being treated. You feel terrible about the position that you have in this relationship. Then you really need to do something about it. And sometimes when you are in it, deep in it, it's very difficult. It will be helpful to talk to someone, to have them ask you informed questions, to see where you are. Is this really where you want to be? Is this really who you are? And then one of the exercises I give people in those scenarios is ask yourself, what am I made of? And come up with the list of main identities that you're proud of as a person, right? And see whether they are seen, could be seen. Are they celebrated in this relationship? Are they respected? Or are they bashed? All of these have a thread of kind of helping I don't want to say unlearning these conventional, but it's reframing kind of the way we think about everything from love to partnerships, how going full circle back again to the introductory kind of question we asked you about how you define wellness, how can these kind of ingredients and rethinking, reframing what we define as love or self and partnerships, intimacy, uh, everything we just described, how does that help us achieve a life of wellness? Going back to the analogy of a spark, log, and fire. If you want that warm, fuzzy, giving back, you know, like cozy fire in your life, you need to take charge of your life. You need to make sure that all of these ingredients are in place. Probably people heard about compassion, empathy, attraction, shared vision. The terminology is the same. What I wish for people to know is that we define them differently in emergent love. Like, for example, for trust, we talk about consistency and reliability. And that on its own, when you have your person and you are another person's person, right? To show up for them with consistency and reliability, you are going to see that you have more peace. Your cortisol level is down. You're not like a chicken with the head cut off. Hmm? So these are the things that are going to lead to more wellness. And by the way, people who have their person, whoever that is in a close relationship, intimate or otherwise, they tend to have healthier life choices. They tend to exercise more and they, they tend to be happier in their own skin. They tend to show up better for their work and it creates a positive loop in their overall wellness. The way that they eat, the way that they view the world is more optimistic, the way their mental, emotional, relational, social and physical health and physiological health is much better. And that all of that goes to that bucket of wellness. Dr. Sara Nasserzadeh is a social psychologist and author. Her new book is called Love by Design, Six Ingredients to Build a Lifetime of Love. Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having such an informed conversation.
That's Well Now for this week. Our show is produced by Vic Whitley-Berry. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's Vice President of Audio. You can follow our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you have something you'd like us to cover, email the show at wellnow at slate.com. Join us again next Wednesday as we tackle another health and wellness story. I'm Maya Feller. And I'm Kavita Patel. Thanks for listening.